Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney, and my guest today is the great Robert Schneider. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast before and you've heard episodes with Rob, you know that we uh, we just talk about stuff that we love, uh, and we love really weird stuff. Um, these are some of the most self-indulgent episodes I get to do on this podcast, because I really get to explore something that I'm interested in, that uh, I think has a lot of uh, 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 worthiness in the cinema canon that maybe uh, other people don't quite give respect to. Um, and uh, in this case, we talked about the films of a great man named Andy Milligan. Um, Andy Milligan is one of those directors, his movies are, they almost defy comprehension, and uh, he sort of has to be seen to be believed. We do talk about him and try to explain him the best we can and explain these movies the best we can. We specifically focused on two films of his, uh, Seeds and The Ghastly Ones, uh, but there is an entire filmography out there to explore and dive into, and um, I give a, a <laughs> I guess a... Um, a recommendation with a warning to dive into those movies on your own. But uh, regardless, I hope you can find this episode, uh, this conversation between me and Rob to be uh, um, educational, uh, exciting, fun, uh, hopefully just uh, an all-around good time, uh, as good of a time as I had having the conversation. So please, without any further ado, please enjoy this very familial episode of We Are Movies. All right, welcome back, Robert. It's good to finally be back. It's been what over a year? Yeah, it's been a little while. Our last time talking was uh, Duke Mitchell, um, the, the great Duke great. Mitchell. Yes, yeah. I can always count on you when you come on the podcast to really bring me something that uh, that I'm going to have a lot of fun talking about, and that's also not going to get me any more listeners. <laughs> and tonight's episode might lose you some we might lose some yeah it's uh I, I feel like the great monkey's paw of having a movies podcast is the more excited i am to talk about something it's the thing that's not gonna get any new people listening it's like every now and then i gotta do a one for them <laughs> type well, of episode it's like when you talk about directors like andy milligan you're like why and why did people go see his movies why is there a cult following yeah yeah it's really it's really a thing where like you start off when you're kind of going down your cinephilia rabbit hole most people start off watching all the canon classics you know the godfather and all that stuff and then you kind of start working your way towards more cult stuff uh and then you just keep thirsting for more. You keep trying to discover more and find like, what is the most disreputable, irredeemable thing that I can find that I can still wrap my interest around? And I think that's how somebody eventually lands on somebody like Andy Milligan. Um, I'm wondering for you, where was kind of your turning point where you think you went from like a normal movie fan to somebody who got really interested in sort of like the gutter tours and kind of the seedier disreputable stuff? Um, it was at a video store that uh, used to be in Clawson, Michigan called Thomas Video. And every time I would go in there, the owner, Jim, would always recommend me these amazing horror films or avant-garde films. Like he was the one who 
made me rent El Topo. Oh, wow. <laughs> How and old are you? I was in my 20s because I wasn't really allowed to watch the stuff at home when I was a kid. But, I would, you know, every now and then I would sneak a videotape in. But it was in my 20s when I really started going to Thomas Video and just fell, fell in love with, like, all the something weird stuff. Yeah. And, hor- like, really bad horror movies. So what initially do you think attracted you to these movies? Because there's a whole genre of so bad it's good. And people, the the usual suspects people point to are like uh, The Room or Troll 2 or Plan 9 or something like that. But we tend to, I feel like that's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's the first level. And then you kind of move on to these other movies that... I sometimes one might say are so bad bad they're good, but I think they kind of transcend that linear idea of quality because there are things about it that we genuinely love. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think part of it is you want to be the person in the room who knows everything, and then yeah. you're here you're hearing someone else who knows more than you going, Oh, you need to go watch Ray Dennis Steckler's The Thrill Killers. <laughs> and you're like, All right. <laughs> Yeah, I love. I, I need to be the one saying that. I love when, it, especially like when I was doing uh, film studies in college, you're always in a room with people that are trying to like one up with each other with the knowledge that they have, and you know, some guy I'll think he has all the bases covered because he's seen like he's seen like oh one from the heart by Coppola, and he's like oh I know all the deep cuts, and then I just drop somebody like Steckler, <laughs> and the and just it's kind of like a it's kind of like a checkmate move <laughs> that I know more. It's funny. I was I was doing a, I was at a show on Friday and I was talking to another comic, and who is a self professed cinephile. And I was recording my podcast, Grindhouse Chic, which you can find on YouTube under Grindhouse Chic. Um, we were doing our discoveries of the year, and I was showing him my list. He's like, "I've never heard of any of these movies," <laughs> and I'm like, "You are not a cinephile." <laughs> That's always the test of cinephilia is to go deeper and deeper, find the things that nobody's heard about. And I think what's great about stuff like something weird is you kind of feel like an archaeologist when you watch the stuff that they preserve, right? Uh, and and actually the the filmmaker we're talking about today, Andy Milligan, a lot of his movies, um, their preservation is indebted like something weird and Nicholas Winning Refn, you know, these people who really went out of their way to preserve and find stuff that would have otherwise been lost films and you feel like you're exploring uncharted territory even though it's technically charted it's just like it's so much it's less covered you know by people well i i think one thing is we we want to discover the the more the weirder more bizarre stuff from cinema and that's where these directors come in because they gave zero fucks about what was good at the time they were just making something because they had to make something they had to get these stories out and you know when we get deeper into milligan we we will definitely be talking about that because yes that's true and 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 somebody like milligan who i think it's very difficult it would be very difficult to do one video trying to track his entire career uh so we're, we're mostly focusing on two key movies today but um yeah go ahead it's weird that we could never cover his entire career because a good chunk of his movies are lost forever yeah most of them a lot of them are lost forever some of them only exist partially right 
Like he has that Southern Gothic movie that I think about two thirds of it exist. Uh, and uh, but he, I guess Robert, how would you elevator pitch Andy Milligan? If somebody's never heard of him before, how would you try to give them an idea of the type of filmmaker he is? You can't because he's labeled as a horror schlock filmmaker. And the yeah. two movies that we're going to be talking about today, one has is I'm sorry, the ghastly ones is considered a horror film. There's no real horror in it. <laughs> and then yeah. um and then Seeds, which is a Christmas movie <laughs> of a very dysfunctional family, is a horrifying movie because of the subject matter. And while there is murder in it. Again, it's not a horror movie per se. Yeah, it Seeds is sort of the uh, psychopath's uh, twist on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, even though it precedes that movie, it's definitely like it's it's the evil cousin <laughs> of that movie a little bit. So I, I think at least with these two, mov- two movies, I think it's more akin to, to daytime soap operas than anything else. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The way that there are 10 subplots that are all equally horrendous, like in terms of, you know, um, what humans are capable of doing to each other. And that seems to be, I mean, Andy Milligan, like it or not for anybody is a no tour. He has these very clear, distinct uh, stylistic flourishes and themes that run throughout most of his films. Um, Whether or not somebody wants to call him good I, I think that's subjective. John Waters famously said, um, Andy Milligan begs the question, can a genius be untalented? But even that, and even though obviously John Waters holds some affection for him, even that is sort of, I think, sort of a shallow way to look at Milligan. Cause like, I think whether or not he's talented is kind of up for debate. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he is talented. I think film was not where he should have been. I think if you watch his movies, he's he's a playwright and these are yeah these are these are basically plays translated into film at least the team we're talking about famously did a lot of like off 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 broadway plays early in his career and even i think had the nypd called on them a couple of times because people heard these like guttural screams and it was just his really kind of countercultural plays that he was putting on uh, at the time and and that definitely I think you can see that particularly in the movies we're talking about today I think that some of his um, some of his love the things that he's actually kind of focused on you, you can feel that you can feel that energy kind of go away when he does more traditional gore movies like bloodthirsty butchers um, but in these ones I think you can kind of get more of that kind of uncut milligan especially seeds well, I, I think with both of them, again, especially Seeds, he was going through some psychological shit. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, there's a great book. Have you read The Ghastly One? By I, I have. I have, yeah. yeah. I, I was able to buy it two years ago or when, right when after the box set came out. Yeah. I didn't, didn't order the deluxe one, but I was able to find a copy of it at BookBeat for a really good price. Okay, yeah, yeah. You get a lot of insight to his life in that. You know, you, you, something about his relationship with his mother, you know, hated his mother, 
uh something (laughs) (laughs) you would never guess that from the fact that all of his films have an evil like a like just a dastardly matriarchal character uh sort of like a norman bates's mother (laughs) type of character no no no, no, norman bates's mother was loving compared that's true yeah compared to women in his movies uh he seems to hate all women uh he was also a gay man who kind of seemed to hate the gay lifestyle too he he apparently was like very uh believed in masculinity more than anything he didn't like sort of the more effeminate gay men and sort of the image that they gave so there's you can definitely feel that in the short film vapors yes yeah with the, the chorus that's basically going around with the brief interludes of the chorus during the main story yeah because it, it focuses on two gay men one is trapped in a loveless marriage right uh the other one's like a younger guy um but then like yeah the chorus these kind of other supporting characters walking around the bathhouse he really does seem to kind of have contempt for them and they have this really they're portrayed as very over the top flamboyant characters and that's clearly not a reflection of the type of guy that uh that annie milligan is and, and not very accepting either no, not at all. Which I mean, uh, Andy Milligan has to be one of the most hateful filmmakers well, <laughs> in the history of America, right? And I don't remember if the book covered it, but I think maybe he was molested as a kid because it's believed. A of, there's a lot of that in these movies too. Yes, yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk about seeds first here because yeah. a lot of that is in seeds. Seeds is a heavy. It's ostensibly a slasher film, is what I tell people. It's on the tin, it might say it's a slasher film. It's a family getting together for Christmas. And yes, each of them are getting killed one by one by a by a, a murderer, but uh that doesn't even like that's unrelated to the fact that multiple of the characters have incestuous relationships uh between brother and sister. There is a sexually abusive uncle, uh sorry everybody listening uh this is obviously pretty <laughs> pretty uh um uh uh you know nasty but um i just like the worst most abysmal people ever to be collected in a house and then the matriarch character is just like extremely unpleasant and hates her children and like there's just so much there's so much going on in this household before you insert the fact that they're getting killed one by one I, I got I got to bring this up because there's one thing I noticed watching it. The Butler Mortimer mm. mm-hmm. doesn't he look like Mark, Mike Lindell with an eye patch? <laughs> <laughs> he does, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Mike the the My Pillow guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's a little bit of something in this movie for everybody. If you're a hardcore Trump supporter, <laughs> you your Mike Lindell representation. Yeah, it's 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 so basically it's about this overbearing mother who looks to be about 80. Yes. Which is something I do want to bring up a little bit later. The daughter that li- her oversexed daughter that lives with her um and her staff, her butler Mortimer and then another butler and a maid who have a devious plan to bilk yeah. her out of her money. <laughs> right. <laughs> also oh. that's going on. And then there's the evil doctor who doesn't want her to die because 
he she is paying him very handsomely yeah <laughs> every character is so unbelievably selfish at their at their best they're selfish and at their worst they're evil Oh, yeah. I mean, let's just see. The, the daughter goes to the city, invites her brother and his wife over for Christmas, which pisses the mom off. Yeah. Now, was the priest a brother or was that? The priest was, uh, I believe, an uncle. So okay. I th- he's the uncle of the kid of the character who, you know, it's applied. He's had a long abusive relationship with in the past, um, which ends up leading the kid to running out in the woods and slitting his wrists, which but, is, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> we're, we're talking about Buster, who's the youngest one of the family. Buster, who, poor Buster. Who, who's still in high school. <laughs> yeah, and, Play, played by like a 25-year-old actor, though. But even then, like, I, I had no, could never figure out how the mom was like 80 and still having kids in her 60s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of bad math. Oh, the mom is a drunk, too. We're forgetting that part. Yes, yes. On top of all the other things, she's a drunk. Uh, and just one of the, I think, the defining things about Milligan that makes his movies so fascinating and kind of, they're they're simultaneously unwatchable, but also you can't take your eyes off of them. And one of those aspects is just the shrill atmosphere. Everybody's screaming at each other. Everyone is so full of hate. And that is like, from the opening scene, the mother is screaming at everybody around her she's just she's just the worst person and you know i i think annie milligan was kind of known for the fact that he sort of tortured his actors a little bit and really tried to get this energy out of them uh kubrickian one might say <laughs> in that in that way uh yeah, but yeah it's an insult to kubrick a little bit probably is <laughs> no disrespect to kubrick but um yeah, it's just, it's an open wound of a movie. It feels like all of this guy's hatreds and anxieties and, and traumas just on screen for you to see, just being thrown up onto the screen. And 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 you kind of got to piece it together and do what you can with it. Because uh, it's not like a thematically consistent film, I guess. I guess, well, I guess the major con- consistency in it is just that it is about... A, the, a family and how hatred has passed to all of them from one person um but yeah the kills in the film are they're violent and they're unsettling but they also feel so um abject like they're so dreamlike like uh and, and some of these things when it comes to that question of whether or not Andy Millingood's talented I can never tell if the effect I'm getting from his films is what I'm supposed to be giving. Like, is he working really hard to get me this sort of otherworldly atmosphere? Or is that just the way it is because of the film he shoots it on and and everything? You know, it's one of those great mysteries. That I don't know. I know one thing that bothered me about Siege was the shaky camera work. Mm Mm-hmm. But I felt like this... I felt one thing that was weird, even though I only know a couple of the characters' names... He actually did characterization with all of them. Yeah. Like um, the one sister horned up. We have the scene with her looking at men, men's muscle magazines. Probably from, Mill- right. probably from Milligan's own personal collection. Yes. Um, we have her brother and his wife. Um, we find out he only married her because she was pregnant. Right. Then we have the uncle 
who is the priest who is just evil. Yeah. Unambiguously um, evil. <laughs> then we have the other sister who very nonchalantly, and this is where I realized it was a soap opera, we find out that Mortimer the butler is her father. Yes, that is true. Yeah. And then there's Buster, who is, I think, the most defined character in the movie, because when we meet him, he is like the most upstanding citizen out of all the siblings. And then there's a really great scene where he's in the bedroom with his mother crying about his inheritance. And then she just verbally destroys him. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, you can make a, I I see a lot of like YouTube compilations of like uh, greatest movie insults. And I feel like you could take a half the script of this movie (laughs) and that's what it is. And I think if he took the murders out of it, this would be a fantastic play. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the, do you think the murders, do they feel perfunctory to you? Do they feel like it was kind of thrown in for commercial value? Well, I don't see this movie, how it was ever actually released. Cause it didn't feel like a drive-in movie per se. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, it was probably played, it probably played in times square or 42nd street. Yeah. It just, it just didn't feel like other movies of that era there was nothing commercial about it and the murders just seemed kind of like thrown in yeah yeah that's true and this movie i guess above all like if we were to kind of categorize it i guess it's been considered a sexploitation film right like it is it's heavy on sexual content quote unquote but at least in its original form not a softcore film like, no, and um, I'll be honest. I've never seen the the hardcore version where they the seeds of sin version, even though I so yeah, I've watched some of it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it was for those for people listening at home. It is uh, when it was released was recut and scenes were added of long. It's actually not hardcore, but long softcore inserts uh to pad out the movie and um. It's and it was marketed as Seeds of Sin as it was released, and it is included on the uh, the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray. So I, I watched I watched most of it, and I would skip through some parts. Um, but what's fascinating about it is I think the movie in its original form it's kind of still structured like a porno. A lot of the scenes just end with people deciding to have sex, and then mm-hmm. it'll cut to the next scene. But then the so then the Seeds of Sin cut it'll just have these long softcore sex scenes after that that are just shot from the neck down because they had different actors in the roles. That makes sense. I'll, I'll be honest. I was looking for my vinegar syndrome copy, which I finally found like last night after I watched it. So I ended up watching the one, the severance set, which, oh, is, yeah. which is the same transfer, but none of the extras. Like I wanted to hear a commentary afterwards. Yeah. That's the biggest fault of the and i know they did the best they could but that seven box set which is a masterpiece uh in film box sets uh the unfortunate thing is yeah they couldn't carry over the extras that vinegar syndrome put out with the uh the seeds and vapors release or the flesh pot on 42nd street release which is unfortunate but um but yeah that that cut is the seeds of sin cut is uh it's it, it actually is unwatchable i'd say i wouldn't recommend it to anybody unless they're interested in seeing 
what how it was released but it's definitely not nowhere near milligan's vision <laughs> well to, to be fair siege is kind of unwatchable in and of it you have to be in the, yes. be in the right frame of mind or you have to be do watch it because you're doing a podcast where you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> will sloan on the important cinema club uh, said that uh, milligan's best films flirt with being unwatchable uh, and that his worst ones just are <laughs> unwatchable <laughs> But which I'd agree with. I think with seeds and then with vapors, I think he was trying to say something with these. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. Um, because there is sort of that thematic consistency. What do you feel? Like, what do you feel he's getting at in his I, early films? I think with with seeds, it's like don't go home for the holidays. <laughs> yeah. But I, I I think in the we're if we're looking, this movie came out in what 68? Yeah, we're still looking at you know this time where America is in embroiled in the Vietnam War, and we're kind of the kind of the nuclear family that we saw on sitcoms was kind of beginning to fall apart. Yeah, he was taking a look, in my opinion, at not every family's perfect, and even the ones that aren't perfect, some of them just do some wrong and nasty shit. And that this is what maybe his family was like to a yeah. to an amped up degree. Yes, yeah, and, and it feels very intentional as well that the family in Seeds is an upper class family with inheritances, and they all live in this McMansion. You know, like it's uh, it's trying to he's he's distancing himself from what we ordinarily consider to be the non. American nuclear family, uh, everyday type of violence and depravity. He's like, no, this still exists within the walls of the nuclear family and of the upper middle class or upper class people. This type of, you know, uh, disrespect for humanity and hatred for each other still exists across all, you know, all incomes and all lifestyles. Do you think he was ahead of his time? Well, I would say so, yeah, because I think that you just look at the, you know, the love for him that exists now did not exist for him when he was around. Um, I, he never really got to see, unfortunately, I think, that fandom around his films that exists today. I mean, unfortunately, he did die of AIDS during the heyday yes. of it, and he died penniless. Died penniless, and until very recently, his grave was unmarked. He couldn't even afford... Uh, a gravestone i think recently fans of his ended up paying for a gravestone well good for us yeah yeah so sometimes good things come out of this <laughs> but it, it's also it's also kind of jarring like growing up i thought everybody who made movies was rich right that's your assumption right like if you've heard of somebody they must be rich <laughs> and like i mean andy milligan as you said he was a was very talented well he was a genius who didn't really have the best talent but i think a lot of it was his movies were made with no budget yeah most of his movies were filmed i think for around ten thousand. and he obviously had a vision and i think it's because he had no budget and the people he knew in new york who financed his stuff if he had financing were looking for cheap thrill fare yes and so I think I sometimes I look at these movies and I'm like that 42nd street crowd, like the people that really wanted to come in and see something crazy 
how did they stand for this? You know, how did they not ride in the theater when they showed up? And it was this just bizarre, you know, doesn't really give you what you want as just a pure exploitation movie is, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think is interesting to people who want to try to psychoanalyze Milligan as a filmmaker and figure out what drew him, what drove him towards making these movies. But man, if I'm just like some guy on the street, some raincoat crowd guy or whatever, how, what would I get out of this? And I can't imagine that it would be much. <laughs> I mean, I just, I think you'd be, Oh, I have an hour and 10 minutes until the next movie starts. Yeah. That's pretty much what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I uh, do. I mean, the other thing, I guess, if we're going to look at the sexploitation aspect of it, nothing about Milligan's movies are sexy. No, no, no. I mean, uh, the women that he basically hires aren't that attractive. Right, right. They're not conventionally uh, attractive women. Uh-oh. And the thing is, they don't in their films. They don't even have good personalities. Right. Yeah. There's. <laughs> you know, if you look at something. Uh, like sex world for instance uh there's like that great subplot about like the the black lady who ends up turning that racist guy not racist by having sex with them and there's a power dynamic there's they're they're empowering kind of the women or they're showing that like like the women have arcs and they have characters uh but all of the women in Milligan's films he has so much contempt for there's no part of him that can show them as attractive because he's not attracted to anybody in his movies well there's that scene with the 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 servant couple and they're yeah. in the and they're in the the kitchen cabinet or whatever the work area and obviously the one guy loves the woman and she's like this is just part of the deal yeah and there, there's no such thing in in at least with seeds where there's anything close to a loving relationship which when we look at that in comparison to the ghastly ones where there are loving relationships. Yeah, the ghastly ones is, I think, fascinating in conjunction with Seeds because on paper, the plot is similar. Um, but yeah, a very different film in terms of the, the characters. Like it doesn't have nearly as much hate on screen as as much kind of vitriol between the characters and obviously nothing as monstrous as some of the people like the priest character and seeds um and it also i think stylistically goes in a very different direction seeds along with vapors i think show i'm curious what you think about this sort of shows to me an alternate milligan that we could have got one day had he not gone in that horror exploitation route which he did you know could he have been a warholian like i i you know artists like sort of like the hateful evil version of of warhol do you see that trajectory existing i i think if we look at his career i don't think warhol it would have been warhol-esque i think if we look at vapors and Mm -hmm. i think vapors is the best thing he has done because it's the most personal thing yes it's a great character study um you have the man, you have the older, the married man, and then you have the the gay guy, and they have this this incredible dialogue between the two, where the one guy lies and says he's been here several times, only we find out that we hasn't, and then we have the dad who's there because it's the anniversary of his son's death, yeah, and 
as we start peeling the layers away, you start thinking, did did the father and son have a more than father and son type relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Because of the way that he's interacting with this young guy. Yeah. It's and, sort of, it's Andy Milligan's in the mood for love a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a great comparison there, but it felt like with at least vapors that Milligan had a story to tell. He, it wasn't bogged down by, superfluous or unnecessary things like murder Mm -hmm. and i do want to talk about the murders and seeds before i get to the ghastly ones but yeah i think if the if these were the kind of movies he continued to make he might have found more success um yeah if you look sorry go ahead if you look at someone like arthur i think arthur bresson who did buddies yeah like um, his adult films were recently put out by Altered Innocence, and I think if Milligan kind of went that way, he, we'd have a very different view of his career. Definitely, he'd probably be seen as more of an art house filmmaker than than an exploitation guy. And uh, I, he, I, I'd also say Nightbirds. I would maybe throw in that category a little bit too. Okay. That's a movie that's it's more of like a domestic drama uh, than anything. Um, and you can see more of that and maybe what he was interested as you know you can see that through line from what he did as a playwright to what he did uh, as a as a director there but instead yeah he did end up going into this different route where he's kind of remembered alongside like you know gore filmmakers like uh uh there's a great story Stephen thrower i heard him on the seven podcast talk about how um they did uh i think it was i forget what magazine it was it might have been fangoria or maybe one of the smaller magazines they did like a story on uh andy milligan at one point uh in like the 80s and um somebody wrote in and said how dare you cover somebody as like ridiculous as andy milligan he has no talent none of his movies are good i expect you to talk about the great uh horror auteurs like herschel gordon lewis and he's like it says something that this guy liked herschel gordon lewis and still thought that andy milligan sucked like that is that is uh and that says a lot that herschel gordon lewis you know a guy who sort of is also sort of the definition of somebody who probably didn't have a lot of talent but knew where to put the camera and knew what to put in his movies to get attention that that guy uh was still like to these people like a hero and and still gave people what they wanted and milligan was not he never fully gave people what they wanted because what they wanted was not what he wanted in those movies no herschel gordon lewis had a blood budget yes He was a businessman, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Yeah, he, he was. If you ever watch the documentary about him, you, you can see that he knew what made money. And yes, he, yeah. he invented the gore film. And and they're both interesting in terms of, like, I think Herschel Gordon Lewis as a director is, is interesting in a bad way where his movies look one-dimensional. Like, he always places the camera just between his two actors and lets them talk. They Like, it's, it's, it's such a, it's just, it shows absolutely no interest in film grammar whereas Andy Milligan seems to show an extreme distaste for film grammar like like he's he has style but it's just the opposite of everything we've been told to do where he'll sometimes like 
scenes are at a Dutch angle so we can fit two actors in a shot or the camera, he'll make everything feel so claustrophobic because the camera is so close to people. Or if two people are talking against a wall, he'll put the camera up against the wall rather than against, you know, around the rest of the room and let us breathe a little bit. Um, Herschel Gordon Lewis was, was a filmmaker who was just out to make money. Andy Milligan had stories to tell. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And obviously, this is not an anti-Herschel Gordon Lewis podcast, but I'd say if we were comparing them as artists, Andy Milligan was certainly more of an artist. <laughs> um, not yeah, to sound also, elitist. Well, Herschel Gordon Lewis made profits from his movies. Yes, he did. He was a successful guy. He did not die penniless. No, but <laughs> I mean, he also had a career outside of filmmaking. He was had his own direct marketing company. Yes, yeah, no, he was he was a savvy filmmaker. He knew what people wanted and he gave it to him. Milligan seemed opposed to that. He everything in his being was against doing what was expected of him for for the sake of success. Um but let's talk about I guess in that respect, let's talk about the kill scenes and in, in, in seats. Like what what do you make of these? What does it tell you about I guess you know, seeds as we mentioned very different from a lot of his other films in terms of it's it's shot in black and white. Um, it's not. I don't think it's a period piece. I think it's a, it's supposed to be modern day. Uh, it, the time. It, it, it takes place in the sixties. Um, yeah, in modern day New York of the times, Staten Island, right? Um, so yeah, what do you make of the uh, the violence in the movie? It, it felt stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like when the when the woman got electrocuted by the radio in the bathtub when she brought that out i was like okay we know how you're gonna die it's like a final destination death a little bit (laughs) you can see all the moving parts there before it happens it it kind of came out of nowhere too and i'm gonna admit something i don't know who the killer is still maybe i missed something what the killer is i forget her name but she at the very end they show that she's the killer she's she's uh uh i forget her name but at the end of it she's the one who's kind of going crazy um, is it the, was it the blonde daughter or the girl the woman the priest brought um i think it's the blonde daughter cuz okay. at the end of it at the end of it she Mortimer. dies she falls down the stairs right right and then mortimer the last scene is mortimer on the phone yes yeah, yeah. She's the one who falls down the stairs at the end. I believe the intention there is the reveal that she was the killer. Okay, I must have missed that because I'm still like... <laughs> <laughs> this movie could have used another seven to ten minutes of exposition. Yeah, it could have used that scene at the end of Psycho with the doctor. <laughs> yeah, but it just felt like... and the, it, Also, the, the, the ghastly one has the same problem. It just ends abruptly. Yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me of like an Italian movie in that way, where it's just like, oh, plot's over, we're done. <laughs> yeah, but the Italian movies are done with such class. They are done with class. The Italian movies, they, they feel intentional. Nothing about Milligan's, they feel, Milligan's films feel real fly by the seat of your pants. Well, I, I feel like it's like, guys, we're almost out of film. Let's get this scene done. Let's do it in yeah. one take. Yes, it has that feeling of like a home movie where you know, eventually like, oh, my friend's got to leave. We don't have enough time. <laughs> like, let's quick. Oh, it's done. All right, great. It's in the camera. We'll figure it out on iMovie or whatever. <laughs> Come on. They didn't have iMovie. He sat there 
cutting each scene, looking at yeah, it before yes. splicing it together. Right, right. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. The the, the kills are stupid, <laughs> and it also feels like the part that Milligan is least interested in. Well, it's it's like when you watch Flesh Pot on Forty Second Street, the the hardcore version of it. You could tell he had no interest in in the in the in the sex scenes. Oh, not at all. No, no. He 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 probably hates sex. It seems to be another thing in his film. Pro- possibly, most likely, also as a product of his childhood. But it, it's something that there's nothing in his movies that he doesn't have contempt for i genuinely think i don't think there's anything in his movies that shows anything that he loves uh because i don't really know if there was any anything that he loved or anything that at least he showed himself to love in his films he loved his art of making people miserable yeah and some of the actors in his films i know were like boyfriends of his which uh i'm always like god imagine imagine meeting this guy and dating him and then finding out this is what he does and he asks you to be in his movie uh, i i don't assume many of those relationships lasted long Accor- according to his wikipedia he was married to a woman at one point probably oh, wow. marriage or convenience and he had a long-term boyfriend wow yeah good for him <laughs> um it's probably uh, because he owned a mansion yes yeah yeah he had that mansion which shows up in quite a few of his films I'm Mike. And I'm Allison. We've both been guests on We Are Movies before. We love talking movies with Johnny. But I'm a jealous boy. You are. That's why we've decided to talk movies with, with each other. We started our own podcast called You, you Made, made me, me Watch. Each week we make each other watch a movie the other has never seen. You Made Me Watch. New episodes every Friday. Which is the mansion and Seeds the same one in the ghastly ones? I was actually about to ask you that. I have a feeling it was. They looked like the same. They have that same really tight staircase that goes very high. Uh, a lot of that, you know, awful 70s decor. <laughs> well, the, the, the ghastly ones of the movie confused me because when you go from the first scene of the, the couple in the 18th or the 19th century on the island yeah. and the murder happens... And then you go to the woman and her husband saying there'd be summoned to New York. It felt for a while like that was they were in different centuries at that point, just with the dialogue and the dress. Yes. Well, th- that's because Andy Milligan, God bless him, uh, decided to make most of his horror movies, almost all of his horror movies, uh, elaborate set pieces, like elaborate period pieces uh, with with costume design and characters talking Try, suppose, supposedly talking like they're from the time but it slips a lot and also all of his actors are like weirdos from staten island so they're not it doesn't feel genuine at all to sort of what he's trying to do with the you know with the the setting no no but as, as we were talking about earlier the ghastly ones compared the family the ghastly ones compared to the family in seeds it's about three sisters and their husbands who are being sent ordered to come to New York or requested to come to New York by a lawyer who might be the weirdest lawyer in cinema history. Yeah. Yeah. He's a strange guy. <laughs> um, to uh, for the reading of the will of their father. And it seemed like their father died years ago. Yeah. That's, that's strange too. They don't really oh. explain that. They do. They the provision was he he the will wouldn't be read until all of his daughters were happily married. 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And That's one true. had just, and then they had to go spend three nights in the house. <laughs> now we learned about the father. He was always away and only came home five times. And during those times, he bore the three daughters. Yeah. Which is so weird. It's very strange. <laughs> I, I, but there's also, you mentioned that opening scene with the couple getting murdered. The one who's revealed to murder them is Hal Borsky's character, um, who in the film is named uh, e, uh, Colin. 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 Um, he's the one who kills them. Uh, and then yet Colin as a character for the rest of the film is a, he's, he's a red herring. He's the, the creepy guy who you think is the killer, but at the end of the movie, he turns out to be good. So that opening scene, I believe was tacked on later to put a kill at the beginning of the movie. Um, even though it's completely unmotivated and doesn't have anything to do with that character. Cause for the, in the rest of the film, he's kind of revealed to not be a bad guy. So, uh, I remember listening to the commentary and how Borsky is in the commentary, um, and he says, like, yeah, I don't really know why Colin kills this couple. He he, he doesn't seem like a bad guy from the rest of the film. <laughs> so no, no, it probably he, was just tacked on. He was just dumb. And you could tell yeah. he was dumb by the fact that he really didn't speak. And he had those really annoying fake teeth in his mouth. Yes, the fake teeth are, are very prominent. Uh, Al Borsky also did the music for the film. That was another thing. He was a very close collaborator with Milligan as well. Um, would you say this is Milligan's best film? Um, I don't know if it's his best, but it might be my favorite. Um, I, I think it's because for me, it kind of combines a lot of things about Milligan. Like it does have a lot of that Steeds era, you know, angry Milligan, but also a little bit more of a genre piece. And it, I think it has some decent genre elements. Like he tries to go more like gothic with the movie. And some of it, I think, is kind of good. <laughs> It, it, it is, and you know there there was tension with the kills this time. Yes, that's true. It, and the thing that really got me is you you like you said you thought you knew who the character the killer was based on the the cold opening, and then he pulls one out of nowhere back to soap opera elements. Yes, <laughs> really out of nowhere. Really, just uh, it's time to wrap it up. So I have so many questions. So one, actually, this is not a question, the statement. I love the fact, again, unlike Seeds, that all the married couple are happy. Yes. No, that they are happy. And that's and that's part of the setup is like, yeah, they're being invited here because they're in a happy marriage. And uh, but that also feels like fodder for for Milligan, right? Like we're gonna see how unhappy we can make them. <laughs> The, the main I can't remember the the first wife and husband were introduced but they're the husband's a lawyer and he's really excited to get a letter from that lawyer because he read all of his books while in law school but they don't have the yes. money to go so he has to go visit his brother to ask for the money yes in a scene that really has nothing to do with the rest of the film not at all and that that again reminds me of what you're saying where that it does feel like a, a serial because or you know or, or soap opera because it is like uh you could make you would have to make like a map like a tree to figure out who these people are how they're related to each other and what how their storylines <laughs> interact because it almost feels unnecessary how many characters there are 
with that brother included. Exactly. Again, but it didn't play anywhere into the main story. And it just felt, again, we get this side story of where brother abused brother. Yes. Yeah, it's incredibly unnecessary. <laughs> that, that's that's Milligan. That's like his his insert there. It's just like, let's put some brother abuse. Uh, I, I, I do want to point out one moment that I think is pretty uh, effective in terms of like, like a gothic horror scene is I think it's when Victoria and Robert, um, they're, uh, when they're alone in their room and they find that X on the door, uh robert leaves and he like leaves the door wide open and you see her just looking out the door into the darkness and she's going robert robert and she's genuinely kind of scared and there's like a moment of like fluidity where the camera kind of dollies in on her it's very strange for milligan it doesn't feel in his usual wheelhouse and i think that scene has a lot of tension to it and then she kind of creeps out into the darkness and um that scene, honestly, I remember recording it the first time I saw it. And I sent it to my friends. I was like, "Holy shit!" Milligan had like a good horror scene <laughs> in his movie. It might have, it might have happened by accident, possibly. Yeah, uh, most likely. <laughs> but no, it's 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 a weird it's a weird movie because unlike other films where oh we're gonna have we have to spend time in a haunted house there was no inkling of that. There was still a staff that worked there. Yeah. It didn't feel abandoned or, or anything like that. Yeah. My, my, my big thought was that the mother was still alive somewhere. And even though I don't think they explained if she was dead, if she was dead or not. No, they don't. Um, I, I also want to mention the, the way that the kills are carried out in the film it's strange like very early on they find that head on the plate uh at dinner so somebody the killer planted the head on the plate uh and everyone jumps and screams but they kill they still keep staying in the house i guess because the will they wanted the money they're still influenced by greed despite the fact that they're getting picked off one by one (laughs) It, it would have been nice to know i mean we got a lot of detail on the father especially at the at the end but I kind of wanted more early on. Like, yeah. what kind of hold did he have over these girls who, it sounds like, barely knew him? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, there's a lot sort of implied backstory that we don't really get much of here. And and it's one where I think some of the, like, you could read in, you know, something more evil or, or nefarious uh, but unlike Seeds, it feels like Milligan is okay with the sort of the unknown in a lot of these cases. There is one scene with the oldest sister talking about how she thought the money should go to her because she was the oldest. Yes, that's true. And I'm think the first time I watched it, I'm like, is this what it's going to be? Is it going to be family against family and everyone's going to end up dead? Right. Like there's like it's uh, it's that movie Free Fire. <laughs> a little bit which i still have not seen even though it's on my showtime queue it's good i do recommend it yeah big fan of brie larson yeah yeah she is in it yeah no she's great in it it's great really brie larson and uh uh by ben wheatley who did uh a great movie called uh kill list if you've seen that one i have not seen that okay i I highly recommend ben wheatley's movie side note to people listening i I do as long as as he didn't direct bullet train i'm fine 
He did not direct Bullet Train. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, so uh where does uh where does the ghastly ones fall for you in the filmography? I know you said that you believe uh vapors is the greatest thing he's ever done. Um, so where do you put where do you put the ghastly ones? I think my top three is vapors, uh flesh pot on 42nd Street, the soft core cut, and then the ghastly ones. Okay. All right, so it's, it's in the top three. Um, um, I, I, there's part of me likes kind of likes monstrosity, but I haven't seen that one in years. Yeah, and and the Garage House Blu-ray of it's sadly out of print. Yeah, um, is it on the box set? Monstrosity? It is not. It is not. They have a trailer for it, but they don't. Oh, have it. okay. All right. So it's unfortunately a little incomplete. Um, I uh, I do think. I, I mean, I guess. If we're trying to track the things that we see across Milligan's filmography, if you were to write a book on him, let's pretend at this point that Jimmy McDonough has not written about him, Stephen Thrower hasn't written about him. If you're watching all his films for the first time, what do you extract across these movies? Uh, sort of a thesis statement that you think exists in his work. It would be I'd be down to two words called help me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's unfortunately apt. He's he's a guy who is so tragic, and all his tragedies are just so bare and so open for everyone to see in his films. And I think it kind of brings us back to that, like, you know, he's not. It's it, this isn't something like Troll Two, where it's bad. It's like a bad genre piece. It's a it's a failed attempt at doing something typical that we understand what they're going for uh annie milligan's going for something that is uncommon and is not commercial uh and also as you're saying like a clear cry for help a clear uh ex expression of a singular man's you know pain and th that's where like we have fun with these movies and they're they are there's aspects that are very entertaining uh but also like yeah, there is an underlying sadness, I think, for anybody who's trying to read about him or or, or study him. And, and that book, The Ghastly One, is about his life is just so, if you're not, like, depressed by the end of it, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> his life is ripe for a movie. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And not even, like, I wouldn't even say, like, a sort of, you know, a Tim Burton, Ed Wood-esque type of movie. This It's deserving of a sadder you know a sadder more realistic movie in my opinion no I, I i agree because his story isn't a pleasant one not at all yeah and, and it's a story that you know it's very sad i think that he never really got to see obviously that he died penniless but also that he never really got to see the appreciation that existed for his work what do you think he would have thought if he saw people today reacting to his movies the way we, just recently, I want to say uh, last year or something, Bob Dylan did a painting of a, of a frame from flesh pot on 42nd street, like Bob Dylan, like, like there's some mainstream, you know, uh, admiration for Milligan's work. What, what do you think he would feel about this? Would he feel any appreciation or, or how would it hit him? That I don't know. I also want to say he was represented in the movie, the Joker when Joker was, walking down the streets of whatever Gotham City's 42nd Street was that the there was a movie there and the trip and the poster 
was based on Flesh Pot on 42nd Street. Oh, really? Oh, I, I did not catch that actually. I don't I don't know how he would think about it, but um, I'm going to use a, a really stupid thing. There was an episode of Doctor Who during the Matt, Matt Smith era where they went in time to meet Vincent Van Gogh. And they brought him to the present where they took him to an art museum that was having an exhibition of his exhibit of his work. And Van Gogh was hearing how all the people were reacting to it. And the doctor went and talked to Bill Nye, who was playing the playing the museum curator, yeah, and asking him how to do, how he would describe Vincent Van Gogh, and Van Gogh started crying. I would think Milligan would basically tell that guy he was full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. Is the thing? Uh, I think that Milligan is uh, he. he I don't, he doesn't strike me as a guy who ever needed or cared about validation. Like he wasn't making work for validation of others. Um, it was purely a self-preservation effort, it seems. He was making movies for him. Yeah. Yeah. The definition of making movies for him. And and when he was making a more Herschel Gordon Lewis-esque film, like a Bloodthirsty Butchers or Guru the Mad Monk, uh, it feels like a castrated version of himself. You know, um, he he is putting in aspects to that, but he is sort of trying to fall in line there. Guru the Mad Monk was the first Milligan movie I ever saw. Oh, really? And how'd you yeah. keep going after that? <laughs> um, also, um, he was someone I never really his filmography is something I never really explored until the late great exploitation TV went live, and they had Guru on there, and they had uh, um, fle- the edited version of Fleshpot. Oh, okay. Well, Guru also, to its credit, is like 57 minutes long. So <laughs> as far as the Milligan films go, uh, it goes down a little easier because it's shorter. Um, but uh, there's one thing I wanted to read here uh, from uh, Stephen Thrower wrote. We're both Stephen Thrower fans, yes. obviously. Uh, great scholar and sort of the, uh, you know, he wrote an amazing book on two books on Jess Franco, uh, a book on Lucio Fulci, you know, knows a lot about these, these kinds of guys and, and wrote a, a really great booklet for the Milligan box set that Severn put out. Uh, we'll, um, we'll call it, it's called Venom. It's called Venom. That's correct. Yeah. It's called Venom. Uh, I'm going to read a little passage from it that I think is really good and kind of says a lot about what we love about Milligan and a lot of these types of films in general. This is on page 10 of the book Venom, uh, and Stephen Thrower writes, uh, he basically talks before this about the fact that uh, we laugh, we we laugh at the cruelty sometimes with Milligan, we, we have no choice but to laugh, and I've laughed a couple of times, we both laughed kind of talking about the things that are in his movies, and um, Stephen Thrower wrote this. He said, do we then go against the grain of his wishes when we laugh? Worse, are we patronizing or mocking him? I can only speak for myself, but from the heart, I say no. I'm amused and delighted by the festering intensity of his work, and I'm always on his side. Seeds, perhaps, the most sustained burst of discordant negativity and seething mother hatred Milligan ever shot is funny precisely because it's so extreme, so haunted, so knotted with fury. 
the laughter it inspires is the laughter of amazement as the actors rip it up on screen as the camera leers and pries and insinuates itself within spittle range of the fuming characters one laughs as if to encourage the film to ever greater heights we can see what milligan is reaching for and we're egging him on far from being critical or condescending the laughter means approval in a spontaneous and voluntary immediate way one is simply saying don't stop um and i could not think of a better way to put it i don't know about no, you. that's that's great that's great i have not read that book yet oh okay yeah it's very good um you know he does go film by film in there but yeah i think he he does a great job out of everybody and, and i think something that we always reach for especially when i have you on the podcast is tr- trying to explain ourselves <laughs> like trying to explain what are we getting out of this what's our emotional experience well, I, I think like for me, and I, I, I do want to go back to finish Gasly once. Um, of course, yeah, is that we want to we want to see movies that are important, even though they're not important. Yes, like we we get we get addicted to filmmakers. Like a few weeks ago, I, I've gone down a just Franco rabbit hole, and <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm kind of shocked myself because I'm not the biggest Franco fan, but I now have a greater appreciation of them. And I've been watching the stuff that Severin's been releasing. I bought a bunch during Black Friday. And I I was watching a movie last night called no, two nights ago called Shining Sex, which I don't recommend. Um is that a Franco movie? It's a Franco film. Okay. And I realized that I will never be as creative as him. Yeah. And he's someone who had all these bursts of creativity and he made more movies than he should have instead of concentrating on just making one great movie a year. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is that a purely business? I think it was a, a business sense because I mean, his films were just really one step below porn, except for the ones that were porn. And then, that industry is churn out, churn out, churn out. And yeah. I mean, I have a feeling Milligan was the same way because in the years he was active, he made so many movies. Yeah. Um, he did. Yeah, definitely. And, and luckily we have more to look at. Like it's a greater, uh, you know, it's a greater document of his life and his, and his mindset. Um, yeah, we're lucky that all of them haven't been lost. Yes, we're lucky that we have as much as we do. And and a lot of that thanks does go off, obviously to something weird and Nicholas winning Refn as well. And uh, you know, they're they're those kinds of people where they'll find some stuff and you look at it and you're like, all right, this never needed to be see again, be seen again, but I'm happy that it's preserved. But something like the Milligan's work, every time something else from it is found or you know, it it does add another puzzle piece to this greater picture of the guy. But I think a lot of this stuff was re-released was because of the video stores that needed yeah. content. And all right, let's put out all these films. Somebody's yeah. going to rent them. Yes. Yeah. Um, so so getting back into the ghastly ones here a little bit. Um, we, we did talk about we talked about sort of the the violence and seeds and how he shoots that. How would you compare the violence and the ghastly ones? Because when the d- despite maybe some of his gothic sensibilities in the movie, uh, the, the 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 violence is still very very gruesome <laughs> and very over the top. I, I think he was definitely making this one for the 
for the drive-in crowd. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it again, if it, this was, what, a 70-minute film, and I think it, there was not a dull moment in it. Not except, at all. Except for the killer reveal. <laughs> well, that's because the killer reveal feels perfunctory. It feels like he doesn't, he's not really interested in it. Well, the, the killer reveal was important because we got so much more background information on the dad. Right. And I, I, I'm sure maybe two people in the audience are actually going to go seek this out. So if you are, for the next <laughs> two minutes, fast forward. Um, they had an unknown sister. Yep. Who, turns out their mom was really cruel and only bringing her out when the father came home to say what a great job she was doing and then made her think she was a sibling to the servants. Yeah. And that's why yeah. she was killing everybody. Yeah. Well, so which she, is great. There's a good story there. It makes much more sense than seeds. <laughs> yeah, but I, I wish I wish there was some some foreshadowing to it. And the only yeah. only real foreshadowing was the one sister going, I'm the oldest sister, I should get everything. Yeah. And was that made played by this the mom in, in seeds? I didn't do my research on that. Uh the maid, I don't oh possibly. They kind of looked alike, just different wigs. They did look alike. And he did use a lot of the same. He he did sort of have a company of players that he returned to as well. Yeah, they're the only ones he could get to make his movies. Yeah, Maggie Rogers. May she rest in peace. May she rest in peace. A great, great actress. Her contributions to film will never be forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at least not by the people who like milligan films not, not by people like us not by us freaks <laughs> um so in in the in, if there was a mount rushmore of filmmakers like ed wood steckler who wishman wishman yeah um why can't i remember her name um roberta finley roberta finley where would you put him on the on the mount rushmore i certainly within like like assuming it was mount rushmore four are you saying or just like a four uh, um i i think i would put him on the mount rushmore if we're talking about these i I, i'd put him i give him a little more credit than somebody like steckler even though i think steckler made more entertaining films um i i don't think I don't think I'm just like, I personally don't feel as much interest in Steckler uh, as a person, as a human being, as I do with Milligan when I watch his movies. Well, Milligan has a much more interesting story than Steckler does. He does. Yeah, that's Um, true. Milligan also worked from scripts. Steckler made one movie where there was a script. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, yeah. Steckler is the definition of of an improvisational filmmaker. Um, and, and and Steckler, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about him one day, probably. And Steckler is famous because of one movie title, not the movie itself. Yeah. That movie is shit. Are you thinking of Rat Finka Boo Boo? I love Rat Finka Boo Boo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, crazy, the, the dead, crazy mixed up creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. It, it became mixed up zombies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. That is a pretty, that's a famous one. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love Rat Finka Boo because I love the music that's in there. Rat Finka Boo was a lot of fun. I was going to say, if you thought that movie was shit, I, I, I would, we would have a sincere disagreement there. But no, no, no. I, 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 I do agree with you on mixed up zombies, even though it is an incredible title. 
Um, I and, and Milligan was not without his incredible titles as well. Also for almost unwatchable movies, I think uh, uh, the Rats are coming, the Werewolves are here. <laughs> is is one of the best titles for a bad movie I've ever seen. No, the, the title is so much better than the movie itself. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that that would that would be a great filmmaking project to give that title to a bunch of fill different filmmakers and see the movie they make and then compare it to yeah. the original. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a mad libs almost. Like, yeah, just or just that prompt. That's that's that would be amazing. Um I I yeah, I, bringing up you brought up Roberta Finley. I think she's an interesting person to bring up as well because she's somebody who is still with us. And every time she's talked to about her movies, she's she doesn't understand why people like them. She seems to have this personality that's just kind of like like when you said that uh, Milligan would tell that guy from Doctor Who that he's full of shit. I think that is something that he does share with uh, Roberta Finley as well. She would just be like, "What are you talking about?" Well, I, I think for a lot of it, like with Finley, she never considered what she was doing was art. She considered right. it, you know, something to put food on the table. Yeah, yeah. But even she is a person who has genuinely great things about her as a filmmaker. There's stuff in A Woman's Torment, stuff in um, Tenement, uh, you know, really effective filmmaking that I, I think did come from natural talent that she had, but still still done in a way that like, it wasn't the types of movies she wanted to do, right? She was a John Ford fan. She wasn't a fan of exploitation. Well, and so She, she sorry, had a right? husband who wanted to make these kind of movies. Right, right. It was Michael Finley who, who she always said, there's a great interview with her where she says like, Michael was really into like John Cassavetes and I thought that shit was so boring and I was interested in like John Ford uh which is interesting because I none of them neither of them ended up making Cassavetes-esque movies in terms of the content I do think we can maybe we can Cassavetes is an interesting because you brought him up when we talked about Duke Mitchell as well um and uh, I've also heard some people say that like there is a there's an alternate universe for Milligan where he could have been like some he could have been Cassavetes asked had he gone in a certain direction but but if you look at Cassavetes he's always had one foot in the exploitation market as well he did yeah he rolled that line a little better though yeah because he was a better writer and filmmaker <laughs> yes yeah 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 certainly um, and he he was a better yeah no I, I think specifically writer the way you said there his scripts are I mean y- y- husbands and a woman under the influence and all these movies are what they are because of uh, the stories and the characters and and the dialogue that he writes. Husbands could have used a little bit less of a script. Yes, that would be so fucking long. <laughs> it's overwritten. Yeah, for sure. I, I pulled up a couple letterbox. Sorry, go ahead. But, uh, with Milligan, though, I wonder what would happen if Hollywood or someone actually gave him a real budget and real actors to make a movie. What we would have gotten? Yeah, I think that's fascinating to think about right like how much of milligan is the way he is and i think we ask this question a lot with these types of filmmakers how much of them are the way they are because of their constraints and what would we get if he was given you know carte blanche Um, you know what we'll never know but we'll never know and that's one of the great mysteries right (laughs) um and a lot of the filmmakers we love are because of the mysteries surround them and, and no less Milligan. I mean, how much of that book is speculation, 
like try, we're trying to find out things about him that we, we aren't co- completely sure about. And a lot of that speculation also extends to what type of films would he have made if he could have just made a hundred percent what he wanted. Um, I, I, uh, I wanted to read a couple of these, uh, letterbox reviews. I pulled up one from seeds, uh, or a couple from seeds. Somebody wrote, Watched at Hollywood theater. Wasn't my cup of tea, but I get the repellent appeal. It left me grumpy though. (laughs) (laughs) That's one out of five stars. Another person gave it one out of five stars. Might be the worst Christmas film I've ever seen, as well as one of the most annoying and boring softcore pornos ever. Uh, Once again, probably not the film you want if you're going and looking for a softcore porno. (laughs) Perhaps if the acting was more in line with Pink Flamingos, this would be at least a little fun in the absurdist eccentric manner. The synopsis absolutely oversells the film as the whole lockdown locked room slasher aspects of someone killing the family one by one is barely a thing. You're better off putting a black and white filter over pure taboo. Sorry, Jade. Um, the, the comparison of Pink Flamingos is interesting because, you know, obviously John Waters is a person who admires him. There are, I think, some surface level comparisons you can make between the two of them but you could not find two more different people in terms of their zest for their industry and what they do than john waters and andy milligan well john waters had a vision of the kind of movies he wanted to make yeah yes and he he was making movies not only for himself right he had a career trajectory in mind uh, he was yeah. a careerist more than anything. <laughs> and, and, you know, John Waters is talented. Yes. Yeah. And he clearly has an energy and a love on screen. And I think that he had the opposite relationship with his actors. When you look at the people that were in John Waters' company of actors, they all loved John Waters and they loved working on movies with him. They had so much admiration for him. And, and, and so there is like, even when he dabbles in the gross kind of unpleasant stuff, there's a joy behind it that isn't in Milligan's movies. Also, you know, John Waters doesn't hate himself. Right. No, he loves himself. <laughs> and I, I think with that confidence, you know, John Waters, I mean, they have a lot in common. You know, John Waters was, is a gay man as well. Yeah, but he accepts who he is. And I think by doing that, it shines in his art. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, uh, Andy Milligan was clearly not a guy who accepted who he is and did not love what he was and and oftentimes showed disdain for everything about his identity in the films that he made. Um, I uh, One of the most... Uh, one of the most prominent well-known criticisms of the ghastly ones came from stephen king i don't know if you're familiar with that i I have read it yeah you have read it yeah stephen king said that the because he talks about all the movies he saw on 42nd street and he called it a movie that you get when you give like it's like morons with cameras (laughs) um which which is stephen king for you somebody else on uh letterbox wrote about the ghastly ones not even trying to be hyperbolic but this is genuinely one of the worst films i've ever seen the acting cinematography pacing oh god the pacing etc is just torture there is literally nothing good about this see that's a guy who i think just expected a straight horror movie it's like the guy who bought sex world and had no idea it was a porno (laughs) yeah yeah it's the same type of like oh this is not for you but actually, I thought the pacing in the ghastly ones was really well done. Again, it, it, it he 70 minutes 
in and out. There was no, there was nothing extraneous about it except for that opening scene. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, but also we are judging it on the Milligan curve as well, right? Like it's a, it's a fast paced, uh, uh, effective horror movie uh, compared to kind of what we expect from him. I'd say that if this guy went in, a guy whose favorite haunted house movie is like the changeling or the others or something, this was probably very different. Well, two, two movies I can't stand. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) I, I, that explains it. But no, I think, again, I think it's like, if you see the words, Andy Milligan on a poster or someone is saying, Hey, come over. We're watching a Milligan film. You have to know what you're walking into. Yeah, I agree. And on that note, like if you're talking to keeping into account what we've just read here, if somebody says like, Robert, I'm going to do a deep dive on Milligan. I'm going to watch, you know, five, six, seven of his movies in the next couple of days. I'm going to figure out what he's all about. How would you prep that person? What would you say? What would you tell them to look for? What would you what would you tell them to go in with in order to kind of get out of it the appreciation that we have? I would seriously talk them out of it. <laughs> because because like one thing about the Milligan box set, and I, I and I'm assuming that's the best way to watch all of his his surviving stuff, minus a couple movies, is there's no context for him. If if you look at the Al Adamson one, which I still think is the the gold standard for a seven director series is that it gives you a documentary, which gives you context for his work. Yes. You would have to read a book or the book that comes with it. You've got to read the ghastly one or the venom, which comes with the set to get that context. Because I, I think if you're going in order, which the ghastly ones are the first one, in the box set, you're going to not want to watch the other eight discs in there. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I, I don't think you're wrong there. It It is something that the context really heightens everything that you see when you watch his movies. So if somebody listened to this podcast, for example, and that sparks an interest in, in researching him and then going into his movies, I think that's a great thing. Or like you said, reading the book or anything like that, all of that, really does accent the experience of diving into his filmography. And I think for the better in the end. Um, but is there anything else you want to say about him or about either of these movies before we sign off? No, I, I think, you know, we, we said it all. I think if you are looking for, and I can't even use the word obscure, if you're looking for fringe dra- melodramas with a tinge of horror, yeah, and something that you want to kick back and drink a few beers with or get high while watching, these might be it for you. Yeah, I haven't watched any of his movies high, but I I'd have to be in a good emotional place. I, I don't do either, <laughs> sure. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. So yeah, I, I, I watched them stone sober at a nine a.m. on Saturday <laughs> and nine a.m. on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's another way to do it too. Um, well, I appreciate you doing that for this. I appreciate you coming on and talking about them. Um, is there anything? Uh, well, you've got a podcast, Grindhouse Chic, which is on YouTube. Yep. Um, I, what can people expect uh, from that podcast? Um, three guys talking about movies. <laughs> in, in, in a very, a very stream of conscious. Our next one that's going to drop is 
Steckler's Thrill Killers, and then we are going to be doing our Discoveries of 2022, and then those two have been recorded, and then we're recording our, this coming weekend, our top seven boutique-labeled Blu-rays, 4Ks, and our bottom five. Well, how did you end up arriving at top seven? Was there just too many goals? Oh, no, they, 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 originally I wanted to do our top ten our top five Blu-rays, our top five 4Ks, our top five box sets, mm. and our t- bottom five. And then they're like, this will take forever. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I did some I did some reconfiguring on my calculator and randomly came up yeah. with seven and five. Okay. All right. So it was which, which is gonna be which is gonna be hard for me because there were so many good releases in 2022. This was a great year. Yeah. If people are into like Blu-ray collecting and stuff like that, there was so much great stuff this year. Well, what was your what was your favorite release of the year? Oh gosh, I would have to I would have to go back. I was I mean, if I'm speaking very uh, typical here, I was very happy that Criterion put out finally put out Pink Flamingos and also a movie that I love called um, Eve's Bayou, uh, which I've covered here before. Um, but uh, I don't know with some of the other stuff, the depths are. I'd have to I'd have to go back and look at what was put out but what real briefly without spoiling your list what do you think was one of the highlights i i'm torn because i think uh criterion's 4k release of lost highway was spectacular oh yeah i've heard that yeah and then classic flicks the little rascal centennial compilation um oh yeah yeah okay cool i i i haven't gotten that one yet either i i do want to point out and i haven't received it yet but uh i'm very happy that cauldron films put out uh the fighting fist of shanghai joe which is a favorite of mine which you finally watched and I, I watched that a couple weeks ago and it made one of my top discoveries of 2022 oh, great that's great um uh, amazing wire work in there and klaus kinski and maybe his best role ever <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, did Vinegar Syndrome put out uh, Miami Connection this year? They did. They did. Okay, um, that's that's definitely near the top of my list too. I mean, also Thriller was the Thriller release was spectacular. Yeah, the Thriller release is fantastic, and um, also did did they put out did they put out uh, Flesh and Frankenstein this year? Or was that last? No, that was that was last year. That was last year. Okay. But yeah, yeah. The thriller box set is incredible. Thriller, a cruel picture and also Miami connection. Um, they're just, they're, they're getting better and better. I think. Um, I think Cauldron is releasing some great stuff. Um, Fulci city of living dead. They've, yes, they've just extended the pre-order price through the end of the year, but they think it's going to sell out before that. So if you haven't ordered it, I'd order it. Okay. I will. And then, um, um it's such a bad movie, but Frankenstein 80. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I also want to mention, um, uh, oh, did it slip my mind? Um, the, uh, yeah, damn it. It was on the tip of my tongue and it just left me, but I will think of it later. But um, And you should have me back on to talk about Shanghai Joe. Definitely, yeah, we should do that sometime, and maybe one day Stackler as well. <laughs> I, we are, we we are currently doing that on, on my show where we had Stackember, oh, okay. which became Stackember, <laughs> and which will eventually become Stackuary. 
Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I do want to, okay, I remember what I was going to say real briefly. Every year, uh, whenever Grindhouse Releasing puts out something, I think it's among the best that they put out. And they did put out Death Game this year, which is a great release, too. Yep, and Death Game is great. Um, I had the I had the privilege of seeing that on the big screen at the AFI here in Silver Spring, Maryland. Oh, nice. And um, that movie is is near perfect except for the ending. I hate the ending to it. The ending's pretty silly, but um i like the ending the, i like the remake ending better the eli roth ending yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah i watched that with my friends austin and uh fabrizio uh the death game and we yeah we had a lot of fun with that and uh great uh, trio of great actors in that movie too really doing some of their best work i think and grindhouse releasing is going to be putting out what i think is already one of the big releases of next year the beyond the composer's cut yes on 4k i believe right yep yep yeah that'll be a huge deal i'm I'm gonna be in first in line for that as well the beyond is i think for both of us one of our favorites yeah it's it's my annual halloween watch and before i go i want to ask you something then we can conclude do you think the price of physical media is getting out of hand uh it depends on the release you know, I there's always going to be a Vestron video out there giving us really reasonable prices. Um, uh, I, I think as long as you're waiting for the sales and stuff like that, like the Black Friday sales or the the Criterion, you know, half off sales, I think it's manageable. But uh, yeah, sometimes I sometimes I think they're asking a lot of us. Yeah, well, what well, about you? Well, Criterion, there's no FOMO with Criterion because they. They're not going to be, they're not going to sell out like that. They're not limited to yeah. 4,000. But That's like true. when it comes, when it comes to vinegar syndrome or Severin, like the, their big release for black Friday was four flies. Yeah. Which was only available that weekend, supposedly. And that was like 60 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's purely just them trying to see how high they can, uh how much money they can sell them for or if it is genuine you know like a need-based thing of like with the titles that they choose to release they have no choice but to sell them for more i'm not quite sure but four fly four flies is particularly a more popular title so i don't really see the need for that i don't know no i i i don't i i don't see why it had to be a four disc set either yeah but that's you know that's boutique blu-rays for you did you end up getting that one I did. I bought the I bought their crazy eight pack, oh, and, cool. and the one I was most excited about was delayed because of a manufacturing issue. Oh uh, man, the Axions Mutantes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I watched the direct. I, I watched Perdido Durango when it came out, and I was like, eh. but over over the last month, I watched uh, the other movie, which I thought was so fucking great. I can't remember the name uh, of it then. Okay, all right. About um, the priest, the priest who's committing all these sins so he can stop the Antichrist from coming. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Day of the Beast. Yes, it's great, great Christmas movie too. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I loved that movie. I have that the 4K of that one that they put it, out. And it, it, it's just it's such a tragic movie too. It's very just that, tragic. Just that last scene. It's like, oh wow. Yeah, very funny though too. Like intentionally funny. Uh, solid horror comedy so yeah uh robert i can't thank you enough for doing this uh i think every time you come on it's something that i'm really excited to talk about and something that i don't have any trouble talking about it's always stuff that i think we 
we have endless amount of things to say about them. So uh, I appreciate I, it. I, I, I can't wait for us to talk about Shanghai Joe. Hopefully yeah. not in a year. Yeah, yeah. No, it'll be much sooner than that. So um, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll have you back sooner than a year. I promise. Awesome. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. that wraps up yet another episode of we are movies thank you so much for listening huge thank you to my guest robert schneider for coming on i always appreciate it uh definitely go check out his podcast grand house chic which i have linked in the description of this episode uh you can also check him out on uh instagram at robert 2339 if you want to keep up with his uh comedy gigs uh that are coming up and uh, also, um, if you're a fan of this podcast and you haven't yet, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at We Are Movies Pod. You can uh, like the Facebook page, We Are Movies. You can also follow me on uh, Instagram at Johnny Mockney Comedy or on uh, Letterboxd at uh, Johnny Mockney as well. Um, that's all I have for you today. I'll be back with you very soon. Um, Happy New Year as well, everybody. This episode should be hitting you right at the beginning of 2023. I've got a couple more episodes on the back burner that'll be fun. And uh, near the end of January, you will get a best of 2022 episode with Ndegwa McLeod and Aiden Supel. Uh, as is tradition and as is tradition uh, it's coming a little later than the end of the year just to make sure that uh, I have time to really catch up and watch all the supposedly best movies from the previous year so I'm looking forward to that it'll be a lot of fun Um, and I have another episode that'll be out with you very soon and that being said um, happy new year stay safe and this is Johnny Mockney saying be kind to your family